Indeed, O oh God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope. It is the grounds of our assurance for a life after death. It is that physical, bodily resurrection from, from the clutches of death that give us all a certainty that the, the final enemy has been conquered. Death has been overcome. And that this is just the dress rehearsal for an eternity of worship and service to the God who made us and found a way to save us in Christ Jesus the Lord. And so, Father, give us at the base of our souls a great certainty, a great assurance that Jesus Christ has gone before us, that he has promised us that were this not so, he would have never mentioned it. But it is so. And might it be the, the sure hope and the firm foundation for every believer in this room. Our Father, uh, we come again after another week of seeing bloodshed and war in a certain section of the world. Who knows what's going on all over it. Clashes in Africa and clashes off the coast of India and, and outright war in Israel and Lebanon. God, there, there is no solution politically or diplomatically. Even militarily, there is no solution. The solution is to be found in the proclamation of the gospel from all around the world. And I pray that you would awaken your people to remind them that the Great Commission was not fulfilled. It has not yet been fulfilled. There is still plenty of work to do. There is still much to be done to announce and proclaim the beauties and the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who fear, I pray that you will calm us in the assurance that you have not slipped off your throne and that none of this surprises you. Our Father, for others who come with facing uh, physical challenges this week, uh, facing family challenges or marital challenges, I pray that being among your people and singing hymns of praise and hearing the word taught and preached, that their souls might be renewed and refreshed and that they might return to their homes better prepared to face whatever that is. Now, Lord, this is the chance that we have to give just a portion of what you first gave us. So take all these monies and use them for one reason, to exalt Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in his name. Thank you. Now, take your Bibles and open them to uh, Genesis 31. And let's begin reading at verse 36. Genesis 31 at verse 36. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> 31. Are you ready? <clears throat> well, I'm not. There it is. Genesis 31 at verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. 
Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side... Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a... A stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha. And Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when you are out of, when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God That is something that endures forever. Gang, let me first say, this is not going to be a sermon about how to study your Bibles. But I I would like to begin this morning with an item that might help you in that regard. And after I finish with this little tirade, um, some of you are going to say, well, (laughs) that was a pretty twisted and perverted way to teach us how to study our Bibles. And and you're probably right, because generally speaking, I'm fairly twisted and perverted. But be that as it may, let's uh, let's take a look. Gang, have you ever heard of the mitzpah benediction? Um, You find it on Christmas cards. Um, Hallmark made a fortune using the mitzpah benediction. It's even inscribed uh, on occasion on the inside of some wedding bands. There is a national organization by that name, Mitzpah. The language of the Mitzpah benediction in the King James Version of the Bible is this. The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent from one another. Um, it's used in those Hallmark greeting cards or in the Christmas cards. 
It's used kind of as a token of, uh, you know, friendship and unity and, and the trust. And when we read those things, all kinds of little um, sweet emotions are conjured up as we sip our hot chocolate in front of the crackling fire. <laughs> Gang, the mitzpah benediction is found in our text this morning. It's found in verse 49. Now, the translation is different because this is not a King James Bible. But it's in 49 from whence it comes. And let me, did you notice as I was reading it, what it meant? What was going on in this story? Did you notice that? Well, um, let me kind of paraphrase it for you. But uh, let, me, let me tell you what's being said in verse 49. It's being exchanged between Jacob and Laban. And basically what's being said is, Because I don't trust you out of my sight, may God watch your every move. Gang, that's what's being said here. This is being negotiated, or this is part of the negotiation. This is, this is exchange while two men are signing a non-negotiation pact. A non-aggression pact, excuse me. Mitzpah is the peak in a, in a range of Mountains in Gilead. And so what it becomes, that is Mitzpah, is a, is a watchtower. It's a, it's a lookout point. It's a watchtower. And so gang, what is being exchanged here? What's being said here is, you no good low down scoundrel, I don't trust you as far as I can throw you. So, I hope God watches every move you make. <laughs> and, and that's what we're putting inside our Christmas cards. <laughs> Gang, do you see how far off we can get in, in understanding what the Bible says? <laughs> okay, let me, if not, let me give you a... Couple of three more examples. Um, there are people who would define themselves as pacifists. You know what a pacifist is? You know, a pacifist, uh, peace at any cost. No, you know, I'm not going to fight in an army or anything. They're pacifists. And they, they appeal to the Bible for their position. And they say that the Bible teaches thou shalt not kill. Gang, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Trust me, the Bible does teach, thou shalt do no murder. But that's a far cry from pacifism. Let me give you another one. Uh, have you ever heard this one? Sometimes it's used in weddings. Uh, it goes like this. Whither thou goest, I will follow. Maybe you've been to a wedding, you've heard that. Whither thou goest. Well, that's found in the first chapter of the book of Ruth, verse 16. And it is a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. <laughs> and yet we somehow got the notion that it was a bride speaking to her husband and saying, Whither thou goest. It's a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. 
Anybody here want to father their mother-in-laws wherever they go? <laughs> Just put me down for no. Um, I don't know about the rest of it. Um, let me give you one more. One final one. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, which is a profound passage. It is Paul's great definition of love. It is marvelous, ladies and gentlemen. And about one out of every four weddings that I do, the, the couple asks me if I will include 1 Corinthians 13 in their weddings. And I always decline. And here's why. Gang, 1 Corinthians 13 is not describing the love that I'm supposed to have with my wife. It's not describing the love that she and I have. It's describing the love that we're supposed to have for one another. It's Paul writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is a mess. And he's trying to correct some of their problems by telling them what love is and how Christians ought to love one another. Gang, 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of fraternal love, not marital love. You know how I know that? Or several reasons. But one of the reasons I know that, if you'll go back and read 1 Corinthians 13 this afternoon, you will find that there's not one mention of erotic love in there. Now, I think most of you married folk would like to have that dimension in your marriage. Gang, all of those examples that I just gave you, they're simply illustrations of sloppy, careless, clumsy, misreading of God's Word. And if we're not careful, we can conclude that this book says things that it doesn't say. You know, guys, I I may be in a minority of one here, but I have a concern, one of my concerns for the Christian church is that the reason the 21st century has so little respect for us is because of our mawkish sentimentality. And so thus I plead. That's all this is. (laughs) I just am making a plea for careful, contextual, rigorous study of this book so that we won't conclude that it says one thing when it doesn't say that at all. (laughs) Okay, now that I got that off my chest, we can move on. And now you know why people call me twisted and perverted. Now, guys, back to the text. Um, The center, the heart and soul of this text has to do with that covenant that you see being Pounded out between Jacob and Laban. It's mentioned in verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant. You see that? Gang, um, covenant, or the word, the Hebrew word is berit. The, 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 the word covenant is a big term in the Old Testament. Big term. Actually, it's a big term throughout the Bible, but it's a particularly big. You remember the covenant back in Genesis 15? When God makes a covenant with Abraham, do you remember any of that? And, and they take those animals and they cut them down the middle and they, you know, they put, walk through the halves of the two animals in this smoking pot and, and God says, I will be your God and you will be my people and you and your descendants. You remember that? That's, that's the covenant. Well, these two guys are making a covenant and whatever is being taught in this episode, it has to do with that covenant. That's the center of the text. 
Now, gang, here's what I noticed about this covenant being pounded out between these two men. I'm suggesting that in the writing of this covenant, you and I get to see the enormous um, difference in God's people as compared to those who are outside of the household of faith. Gang, what I'm suggesting is what you're going to see in this, this writing of this covenant is how utterly different you and I become once God has done this enormous work of grace in us. I want to point out the differences, or some of them, um, the changes that come over us as a result of God's saving work wrought in us. What you're gonna, what we're gonna do is, I'm gonna try to compare for you, Jacob and Laban, as they work through this covenant. Are you with me? I got four or five of those things, four or five of those differences that I, I think you'll see. And, as, and the differences, by the way, are the result of God's work of grace in us. Okay, here's the first one. It is our perspective on spiritual reality is completely overhauled. Let me show you what I mean. I mean, let me explain. Gang, I don't know whether you got this when I was reading this text, but did you notice what happens? Um, uh, you know, Laban has confronted him about, oh, you stole some things and you've been running off with my daughters. And so in verse 36, Jacob is angry. And Jacob says, all right, now go ahead. You just prove what, uh, you just show me some of the things that I stole. Just set them out of here. And then he goes on to say, these, verse 41, um, oh, oh, this whole thing is, you know, I've worked for you these years. I worked for 14 for your dollars. I worked for six for the flock. And when at the nighttime it was cold and I couldn't sleep, and daytime it was hot. And, and well, I never told you that people stole your flock. No, 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 I didn't. You changed my wage ten, uh, wages ten times. And, and then notice this, verse 42. If the God of the father of the God of Abraham and the fear of God had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. He makes this impassioned plea about what God has done in his life. (laughs) And then, look at verse 43. Laban says, the daughters are my daughters and the children are my children and the flocks are my flocks. What? (laughs) Did you not listen to a word I said? I don't, that is irrational, ladies and gentlemen. Jacob has just made this impassioned description of what God has done. And, the, and Laban says, they're mine. They're mine. It's, it's, it's utter blindness. Did you not listen, Laban? Oh, yeah, he listened. But he didn't hear anything. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, non-Christians have no idea... How pervasive is their blindness? And neither did we before we became Christians. Gang, listen. Laban listens to Jacob like non-Christians listen to Jesus. They hear words coming out of his mouth, but not a one of them registers. Gang, in the New Testament... 
Jesus heals more blind people than just about any other kind of people that he heals. And every time he heals somebody that's blind, you know the intent of that, don't you? The intent is to communicate just how pervasive is our spiritual blindness apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Guys, before God does his work, we are incapable of understanding any spiritual truth. Just like Laban. Until the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, we don't understand anything. But once he does, then our whole perspective on spiritual truth is overhauled. I want to read you just one little paragraph. It's brief. This is from a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And she says this. Earth is crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around and pick blackberries. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Every bush is aflame with God's presence. But only those whose eyes have been opened to see it take off their shoes and worship. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Gang, that, that, is, that is one of the great changes that has been wrought in us because of the power of the Holy Spirit. When you're blind, you don't know you're blind. You know, I haven't done much of this, but I've done a little. When you work with addicts, alcoholics, it seems like the last person to know they're an alcoholic is the alcoholic. AA knows that. And you know the little 12 steps in AA? You know what the first one is, don't you? The first step is that you have got to admit to the depth of your need before we can ever help you. But gang, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, nobody admits their need. Do you know why you admitted yours? The Holy Spirit of God. Do you know why you understand The Holy Spirit of God. Do you know why your eyes really see and perceive spiritual truth? The Holy Spirit of God. Do you know why you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Well, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that work, our whole perspective on truth, our whole perspective on life is overhauled. Jacob sees it one way, and Laban doesn't understand a word he said. Just like a Christian and a non-Christian. We just view things differently. That's the first difference I want you to see. Here's, here's the second one. I don't know if you noticed this, but did you notice that, that there are two altars in verse 52? There is a pillar, and there is a heap. There is a pillar at which Jacob worships, and there is a heap... At which Laban worships. And it appears that Jacob builds both of them. But, um, but he wants to make sure that Laban understands that Laban doesn't worship at the place that he worships. He doesn't want any mixture of the two. Here's my point, guys. One of the things that gets renovated once God has done his great work in us is the whole idea of worship. 
it changes. This worship project is altogether new. It's the difference between worship and going to church. Guys, if you hear people talk like, well, I go to church. Guys, I hope that's not why you came. It's the difference between being and doing. Gang, our culture has a, a fundamental crisis when it comes to understanding the difference between, or the relationship between being and doing. I have people say to me things like, well, I, I want to go to church because I want to be a better person. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's not why I come to church. I come to church to know more about Jesus Christ. The non-Christian worships at one altar and the Christian worships at another one. Gang, if you're here so that I can give you something to make you a better person, I'll tell you how you can get to be a better person. Fall in love with Jesus. How about that? It'll change everything. But Jacob seems to understand. He's got a heap, I've got an altar, but those two don't. They're not the same thing. He worships over there, I worship over here. Because our worship is different. There's a third one. And it's just as basic as this, ladies and gentlemen. There are two separate gods. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 53. Um, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Nahor was Abraham's brother. I'm in verse 53. The God of their father judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Guys, do you see what's been... By the way, look in verse 53. If you will see the verb judge between us. That verb is in the plural. And what that means is this. There are two different gods being mentioned here. Laban's got a god and he calls him the god of Nahor. Jacob's got a god. And his god is the fear of Isaac. By the way, that is the, this is the only chapter where that, that term, it's found twice in this chapter. That's the only place in the Bible where that term is used to describe the fear of Nahor. Or the fear of Isaac. And, and I'm convinced that what Jacob is doing is making sure that Laban understands is, hey, you can, you can cry out to whatever God you want to. That's not my God. My God is the fear of Isaac. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you will make no mistake. The Christian has a God to whom they worship. Everybody else worships a different God. And you can see the differences in our gods. You can see it in the way we approach career, in the way we approach money, in the way we approach family, in the way we approach marriage. I'll tell you this. How about this? Try comparing the God of this book with the God of Islam. Guys, once God has done this great renovating work in us, we change gods. We get a whole new God, and he is called the fear of Isaac. Jacob senses something in God that's, that's frightening and numinous and awesome. And it shows up in every little sphere of his life. Once God has finished with us, that is, bringing us to life,
we got a different God. Our God is holy. There's a fourth thing that I want you to see. It's, um, it's in verse 47, where when they're, when they're naming this place, Laban called it the Jigar Shahadutha. Um, that is an Aramaic term, and then Jacob calls it Galid. That's a Hebrew term. The point is, they got different languages. They talk different. I mean, uh, the, the Christian and the non-Christian, they just have a different kind of, kind of language. They sound different. <laughs> they sure ought to. You know, guys, um, you, you remember the story um, in the New Testament? It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's on trial, and Peter is following him around all around, and, and, uh, and he denies him three times. And um, it's that little servant girl that uh, ultimately stumbles. You remember what the servant girl said to Peter? She, she looks at Peter and she says, oh, yeah, yeah, you're a follower of Jesus. Your speech betrays you. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It sure ought to. The way we talk, the way we sound, the subjects about which we speak. Oh, 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 they're different. Once that work of grace has taken hold of our souls, my, oh my, it changes. It changes the sound that comes out of here. And the fifth thing that I want you to notice is that they have different kinsmen. Did you notice that in verse 37? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. That is, Jacob's got some kinsmen and Laban's got some kinsmen. Jacob's got a group of people that he runs around with and Laban's got a group of people that he runs around with. Because once that work of renovating grace has taken place in my soul, ladies and gentlemen, the people that I enjoy, the people with whom I uh, hang, they're different. I just run with a different crowd now. You know, I've told you this story before, and, and I, maybe I've told you several times before, but I, I can't, I, I just want you to know how, what a mark it left on me right after becoming a Christian. Uh, Susie and I had just married. We married here in Memphis in July, and Procter & Gamble transferred us in August. And we moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so we lived in a hotel for about a week, and we found us a, an apartment to rent, and we moved into this new, brand-new apartment complex. They were still building it while we were there. And we got one of the – we were the first persons in our apartment, and um, um, the first person to live in this particular apartment. And uh, it was kind of a new, swank, hip place to live, and a bunch of young couples and young singles like us were living in this place. And they had this, this, this community room and this nice swimming pool, and they had just opened it up. And off to the side, they had this volleyball pit. And every weekend, you know, all the place was just crammed with people and everybody lying around there and doing it. It was just... So Susie and I were out there with them, and, and they were playing volleyball, and I was dying to play volleyball with those people, you know. <laughs> but I wasn't going to go barring away, and you know. So um, um, sure enough, my, my big opportunity came. They came over and said, hey, uh, you, you want to play some volleyball with us? And I said, oh, yeah. You know, because I wanted to go out there and show them what an athlete I was, you know. <laughs> 
And uh, that was back in the days where I didn't mind taking off my shirt either, you know. And uh, so I went over there and, and you know, kind of got ready to play. And we were all... And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I wasn't out there 15 minutes when I thought, oh, my. You know, the, um, the, the language, <laughs> it was a little profane and crude. And there were way too many people on that volleyball court drinking way too much alcohol. And there were some people slapping some ladies on the bottom that weren't their wives. And I wondered... What in the world am I doing out here? I don't belong here. And I knew that after I had become a Christian, I had a different set of kinsmen. Gang, let me leave you with this. Christians are different. We're different by intent. We're different by design. We're different by definition. We're, we're supposed to be different. Our, our, our glory is in our difference. The glory is in the difference that grace has made in us. And because of that difference, my brother and sister in Christ... Let me, let me suggest that you keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, could I read you this? this? This is just a couple of verses. This won't be long. But this is out of, I just think this is wonderful. This is out of Isaiah 8. Don't turn. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. Gang, do you understand that because of this renovating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have a whole different set of fears. Don't fear what they fear. You know what Laban and his family fears? They fear um, loss of status, public humiliation, rejection. And God says to Isaiah, don't fear what they fear. You fear me. After this great work that God has done in us, ladies and gentlemen, we are a people who would much rather displease them than displease Him. And then one other thing to keep in mind. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 talks about what fellowship has light with darkness. What fellowship has the sons of Belial with the sons of Christ. Folks, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, let me explain. We as God's people are indeed to maintain a distinctiveness about who we are. Without going so far as to create a bunker mentality, an us versus them. Did you hear me? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is to be a distinctiveness between us 
And then, yes, without all that judgmentalism and with all, without all that better-than-thou stuff, which are only examples of how, we, how little we understand grace. But, ladies and gentlemen, we are to maintain a distinctiveness. We do belong to two different kingdoms. And I have responsibilities to Laban and his kinsmen. But those responsibilities do not involve me including Laban and my family. Because I just might learn to love his gods. I'll close with this, guys. Back in Genesis 15, where the covenant was being hammered out between God and Abraham, you know, when they split the animals and they walked through the halves of the animals and and the smoky pot and all that, Genesis 15. In this covenant that we looked at this morning in Genesis 31, did you notice there is no blood? There are no dead animals. And I don't know whether you saw this or not. But in verse 55, did you notice who Laban does not embrace? He kisses his grandchildren and he kisses his daughters. But Jacob, he turns his back on. Laban spurns the only access he has to this covenant of grace by thumbing his nose at Jacob. And Laban walks away and we never hear from him again. He's lost. Forever. My friend, You turn your back on Jesus Christ and thumb your nose at what he's done. And you will join Laban. Lost. Forever. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us of the distinctiveness that you have created in us because of the great work of grace that you performed in us. That the Holy Spirit has taken up residence and has created a whole new value system, a whole new set of priorities, a whole new way to talk, a whole new set of kinsmen, a new altar at which to worship a new God and we view life and we view truth altogether differently. That is our glory, Father. That's when we're the most appealing to the world. That's when we're the most enticing for them. That's when we offer the most hope for them. When we're the most unlike them. Father, forgive us 
that in carrying out the Great Commission, we've become more like them than we were supposed to be. And thus we hold no hope for them. I pray that in our distinctiveness, that they might see the great work that Jesus Christ has performed in us. That we do differently because we've been remade on the inside. That Christianity is from the inside out, not from the outside in. Thank you for the new heart you've given us. Might the rest of our lives be lived as a thank you for that grand work of grace. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.